6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, Dr. Chuck Missler's daily radio program connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. This series is entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours. In today's study, Dr. Missler begins his session entitled, The Book of Daniel. Well, we are in hour nine of Learning the Bible in 24 Hours. And every time I use that title, I'm almost embarrassed. That's an audacious title. You can't learn the whole Bible in 24 hours in, in, in one sense. And yet, in, in a one sense, you can. Because our goal, of course, is to get a grasp of the whole. And once you have a perspective, you always know what questions to ask, and you can dig into the specifics. But this will give you an overview. But this particular hour, we've actually budgeted the entire hour for a single book. It's understandable we use several sessions for Genesis and several for Revelation because they're sort of the bookends that tie it all together. But in general, we go through and take groups of books. But there's, on a couple of occasions in our study, we're going to single out a book to go a little bit deeper uh, because it's so pivotal. And the book of Daniel is one of those books. Very popular book. I would say after Genesis and Revelation, it's probably the, the most popular book to study, especially for Gentiles, because it's one of the books of the Old Testament that really includes some very special treasures for everyone, of course, but also specifically uh, for the Gentiles. So we're getting into the book of Daniel, a very colorful book. I have to say candidly, one of my favorite books, because there is a verse in this book that caused me, even as a teenager, to be blown away and really discover the reality of who Jesus is. And it was that verse that, I was a Christian, I had accepted Christ, but the, the discovery of the implications of the last four, four verses of Daniel 9 is what really galvanized me to understand the reality that the Bible is true and Jesus Christ really is who He said He is. Well, we'll get there. So, the book of Daniel is 12 chapters and two halves. The first six are historical. That's why we're using it right here in the historical sequence that we're doing. The first six chapters are, are really a history, very colorful history, very interesting uh, anecdotes that take place. The last six chapters are like appendices at the end of the book of the visions that he saw, summaries of uh, a number of very, very important uh, visions. And it'll be important to understand that it's not in chronological order. The first six chapters are chronological, but um, chapters 7, 8, and 9 occur within the other chapters, if you follow me. So we'll make that clear as we go. But anyway, Book of Daniel, first six, historical, the second six, some really treasures of prophecies. So the historical narratives. The first chapter is the deportation. Daniel is a teenager, and he's deported as a slave when Babylon conquers uh, Israel. The second chapter will be a dream that the king of Babylon has that Daniel interprets, and that leads him to a key position. His rivals contrive against his three friends and himself 
in chapter 3, the famous fiery furnace thing. And chapter 4 will surprise you. It's a chapter written by a Gentile king. Nebuchadnezzar himself writes chapter 4 personally. Chapter 5 is the fall of the world capital, Babylon. Very colorful chapter. And very significant for us today because the future of Babylon is very, very critical for any biblically oriented person. And then chapter 6 is the lion's den which strangely enough I will call the revolt of the Magi. Most people have no idea who the Magi are at Christmas, but we'll get into that a little bit. As we look at the panorama of history that we've been exploring, we're after the monarchy. We've just been through the monarchy. The monarchy ended with Babylon conquering Jerusalem. So we're now approaching that period of what's called the exile, where they are captives for 70 years. In fact, uh, Babylon conquers. Nebuchadnezzar is uh, the bright young king, excuse me, a general of the king Nabopolassar. And he's a very successful general. And he sets siege to Jerusalem. And uh, that starts a period of time called the, uh, the captivity, the Babylonian captivity. He takes captives, sets up a vassal king to be subservient to him, takes hostages. Daniel and his three friends are among those hostages. But Jerusalem then goes and rebels after some years. So Nebuchadnezzar has to set up a second siege. And he replaces that king with his nephew, Zephaniah. And again, um, they are still captives to Babylon. During this period of time, Jeremiah from Jerusalem and Ezekiel from Babylon uh, are preaching, saying, don't rebel against Nebuchadnezzar. We're we're his slaves, but Nebuchadnezzar is the instrument of God here. The false prophets are telling the leadership, we're God's chosen people. Uh, We're going to rebel against Nebuchadnezzar. And they eventually talk the king into doing it. When that happened the first time, Nebuchadnezzar replaced that king and laid a second siege and replaced him. Well, after the second siege, both Ezekiel from Babylon and also Jeremiah from uh, Jerusalem are saying, don't rebel, because if you rebel again, God will destroy Jerusalem. And they don't, the false prophets convince the king, on a, get him on an ego trip and and he goes ahead and rebels against Nebuchadnezzar. And by now, Nebuchadnezzar's had a belly full of this whole situation. He lays a third siege and takes them all captive and destroys the city. So there are two periods of time in the Bible that were predicted to be 70 years. One is called the servitude of the nation. And it starts, of course, with the first siege when they were made vassals of Babylon. And it goes for exactly 70 years. And uh, finally, when the Persians conquer Babylon, and Cyrus the Persian, that ends the Babylonian captivity. That ends the servitude of the nation, because as you'll see, we'll get into it, Cyrus frees them to go home. There's also a period of time called the desolations of Jerusalem, and it's also predicted to be 70 years, and many scholars assume they're both synonymous. It's the servitude of the nation, the desolation of Jerusalem, They're both 70 years, but the desolations of Jerusalem start from the third siege. Second Chronicles takes us up to the 
end of the servitude, when they finally get to go back home. The book of Ezra that we'll come into in the next session will deal with this, what's called the uh, post-exile, after they get back from the exile, back from the captivity. And then, uh, now the desolations of Jerusalem, which starts with the third siege, ends when they're able to finally rebuild the city, and they do that under Nehemiah. And Nehemiah, by then, is a cupbearer to the king It's in charge of the area, Persian king. He gets permission to rebuild the city. Now, the temples will, will, is, is the problem. They've gone ahead and worked on that during the days of Ezra. Nehemiah comes along and gets the authority to rebuild the city. The decree of Artaxerxes will turn out to be very important to us as we get into this. And that starts, that triggers a very, very provocative prophecy in the book of Daniel that we'll look, be looking at. But it's important to understand that the servitude of the nation starts from the first siege, is seven years to the day, to the day, until uh, uh, Cyrus releases them. The desolations of Jerusalem, the destruction of Jerusalem, was from the third siege. So they're both 70 years to the day, but they're not coterminous. The desolations start with the third siege, and they end with a very particular decree by a Persian king that we'll get into. During the, uh, this whole period of Babylon, we have Daniel as a prophet. Uh, Ezekiel is also a prophet. Daniel gets deported in the first siege. Ezekiel gets deported in the second siege. Also, after the Babylonian captivity is over, uh, during the days of Ezra, we have the prophet Haggai, uh, also uh, uh, preaching uh, uh, in parallel to the issues that uh, emerge in Ezra. And in Nehemiah, we have Zechariah and Malachi, with the Malachi closing, of course, the period that we, either the Old Testament. So that's a, a broad view. Little background to understand what's going on. Nineveh ruled the world in the Assyrian Empire until 612 BC when it finally falls to an alliance of both the Babylonians and the Medes. It's a, only a few years later that Pharaoh Necho of Egypt is now emerging as the dominant player because he, he leads an army against the remnants of the Assyrian Empire. During that time, by the way, is when Josiah fights Pharaoh Necho to, re, to try to get his, the Ark of the Covenant back and gets killed. Pharaoh Necho, it, most people don't realize, is Ethiopian, not Egyptian. And uh, that leads to a whole other study I encourage you to look at in terms of the possibility that the Ark of the Covenant is still being protected by the Ethiopians to present to the Messiah when he rules in Zion. But anyway, three years later, there is a famous battle, the Battle of Karshemesh, because by then Nebuchadnezzar, the general of, uh, under Nabopolassar, the king of Babylon, uh, his son, is a sharp guy. And he ends up defeating Pharaoh Necho at the Battle of Karshemesh, which makes Babylon the dominant power in the region. This is the typical date used to mark the beginning of the Babylonian Empire. That's the background. Now, on his way home, Nebuchadnezzar lays siege to Jerusalem for an additional trophy. During that siege, he discovers that his father has died. He's now the king of Babylon. He, he succeeds at the siege, takes, sets up a vassal king, takes Daniel and his three friends, among others, as uh, hostages to be educated, they're teenagers, to be educated at court at Babylon to serve at the, in the court of the, the king of Babylon. 
Daniel, by the way, is the most authenticated book in the Bible. Many people have problems with Daniel. It's, there's more archaeological and documentary evidence of Daniel than any other book in the Bible. It has been authenticated by none other than Jesus Christ himself. And we'll look at that before the studies are over. So if you believe in Jesus Christ, you have no problem about the authenticity or the reliability of the book of Daniel. If you don't believe in Jesus Christ, you've got bigger problems than the authenticity of Daniel. But his three friends are uh, deported as teenagers in the first of the three sieges by Nebuchadnezzar. And they commit themselves to refrain from the diets and practices of the Babylonians, uh, and they, they want to stay faithful to the way they've been taught, despite the fact that they are in, in an enforced pagan environment. It's a very interesting thing to study because our children are in an enforced pagan environment. And it's interesting to, to see the contrast and the faithfulness of these young men. One is, one is named Hananiah, that's his Jewish name, but he's given, all three are given Babylonian names. And due to this popular song about this, everybody knows the Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Well, Shadrach's name was Hananiah, which means alumed by the sun god is what it means. They're given Babylonian names in, in, their, in the Babylonians' attempt to get, him, get them assimilated into their culture. And Mishael is called Meshach, who is like the moon god, is what it roughly means in Aramaic. Azariah, his name was Abednego. So the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are the Babylonian names. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are their Hebrew names. It's interesting that there has been discovered a clay prism in Babylon. It's, now in, it's presently in the Istanbul Museum, which mentions these three guys. Hananuru, the chief of the royal merchants, a variation of Hananiah, and Mushel Emeritic. Emeritic was one of the gods they worshipped, and uh, Ardinabu. The pronunciations are very corrupted because of our, our clumsy attempts to transliterate from one language to another. Transliterate is different than translation. Transliterate means to you try to render it roughly the way it's pronounced. And you'll see some strange ones. But anyway, this is regarded as, as authenticating the three. But anyway, so here we have this young king who's just uh, taken over from his father. His father passed away. This young general is now the king. And he inherits the staff advisors, these cronies that advised his father. And he can't tell whether they're really any good or not. So he's defeated the pharaoh Necho, so he's taking over the throne on his father's death. But these staff advisors, he, he doesn't know whether they're any good or not. One night... Nebuchadnezzar has a very troubling dream, and he uses the dream as an opportunity. On the one hand, he's troubled, he wants to know what it means. But he also uses it as an opportunity to see if these guys really have any unique skills. So he insists that they interpret it, but he won't tell them what the dream is. And they're upset about that, because if, if, if he'll tell them what the dream is, they'll contrive some kind of explanation. But he won't do that. In fact, he believes they're stalling for time, they're not giving an answer one, so off with their heads. In other words, he's, he knew how to reduce head count when it wasn't being productive. So he's really using this as a test, and of course he puts out the word. Now, what obviously happens, if you, when you read chapter 2, Daniel is in the job category that's been wiped out. Everybody in that job description was to be killed. 
And when Daniel gets the word, when the word comes down, that's what's going to happen. He goes to his supervisor, Arioch. He says, give us a chance at it. We, we have a God that will help us and so forth. And so what, what, what Daniel does, he goes to his three buddies and says, boy, we have a prayer meeting tonight, guys. You know, Because tomorrow, off of their heads otherwise. And so anyway, they go to Arioch. Arioch arranges for them to present to the king the results. And chapter 2 is one of the most dramatic chapters in the Bible because you've got these skeptics whose lives are at risk in the back row watching all this. And here's these three or four young guys. Daniel comes up and he explains to the king what his dream was and he also interprets what it means. So this is not subject conjectures. Daniel will interpret the dream for you. But obviously... Nebuchadnezzar is profoundly impressed, and he elevates Daniel to high office. Now, the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had in his dream, Daniel explains, that um, he saw a metal image, a very tall metal image. The head was of gold, the arms and chest of, was of silver, the uh, belly and thighs of, uh, were of bronze, and the legs were iron, and, and the feet were also iron, iron mixed with clay. As you will discover, there are four different metals here. The fourth one has a second phase where it has something added to it. We'll get to that when the time comes. Oh, and then what happens is a rock, a stone cut without hands, hits it at the base, and that stone grows into a mountain that uh, doesn't only just fill that region, but it fills the entire world. Pretty strange dream. If you had that kind of a dream, you'd probably be pretty troubled too. Well, Daniel goes ahead and explains it. He says, you, king, are this head of gold. But you're going to be succeeded by someone else. And uh, what he lays out, what the metal image turns out to be, is a timeline of the great empires. Babylon first, Persia the next, then Greece, and then Rome. But Rome apparently is in two phases because it's going to break into pieces, and then those pieces are going to recoalesce into a second phase of that, that first empire. So we'll call it, for our purposes, Rome Phase One and Rome Phase Two. And most scholars recognize that Rome in those two phases are represented by the, the, the iron and the iron mixed with clay. We're going to discover in a subsequent vision the same information that, in effect, supports this same view. We'll get to that when we get to Chapter 7. But what's interesting here is Babylon, of course, rose in 606 B.C., as I mentioned. In 539, the Persians conquered Babylon. And the Persians endure till a young guy by the name of Alexander the Great conquers the Persians in 332 B.C. Greece continues to about 68 B.C. when this upstart on the Tiber called Rome by then has, conquers the Greeks. And the question is, who conquered the Romans? No one did. Right on. Exactly. Rome, Rome broke into pieces, and each one of those pieces has had their day in the sun. The Dutch uh, did, the, the uh, Germans twice, the French did, Spain did with the Armada, England with mistress, as mistress of the seas, and so forth. But none of them quite equally. And what the, the profile is presented is that th these elements are going to recoalesce again into a final version of the original empire. And that will be the last empire on the planet Earth. Because 
uh, I should say next to last, because that's the one God intervenes with and sets up His own kingdom. And that's what the mountain, the stone cut without hands, is messy, it turns out to be the Messiah, and the mountain that fills the whole earth is God's kingdom that's going to take over. And we have the whole profile. Now, as most people know, the cradle of civilization was what we call the Fertile Crescent. There was Egypt, Assyria, and Babylon, preceding the time we're talking about here with Daniel. But in Babylon, there was a city called Babylon that you know, then conquered the area, and this is, brings us contemporaneous with Daniel. But after Babylon, of course, will come the Persians. And the Persians not only conquered, but expanded, expanded their holdings substantially. And then this young guy, in a matter of just a few years, conquers the Persians. Alexander the Great. A very incredible, incredible career. When he dies, the empire gets divided. Four of his generals divided up. Cassandra takes the far west. Lysimachus takes the, that part that we think of as Anatolia or Turkey. Seleucus takes the east and Ptolemy the south. The two strongest of the four are Ptolemy and Seleucus. They're the primary players. And they, the dynasties, a half a dozen of their dynasties on both sides, fight with each other. And what's caught right in the middle is guess who? Israel. Now, many people talk about the period between the Old Testament and the New Testament as the silent years. And that's true in a sense, and yet it betrays a lack of understanding of the book of Daniel. Because in Daniel chapter 11, the history from the Old Testament through the New Testament is written down in advance in chapter 11. And we'll discover the so-called silent years are detailed in advance in uh, Daniel 11. Interesting book. And of course, the Roman Empire succeeds all of this and uh, grows to be a, 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 a you know, well-known period of our history. What most people don't realize, many of us that study the Bible or study these things, when we think of the Roman Empire, we think of Western Europe. What we fail to keep uh, aware of is that that empire broke into two legs because it got too big to administer. So Diocletian divided it into two legs. And the Western leg, the Western Europe, breaks apart, falls apart in 476 AD and following. The Eastern leg outlasts the Western leg by a thousand years. So much so that we give it a different label. We call it the Byzantine Empire. But it's really just the Eastern leg of the old Roman Empire. Anyway, so we have a period of the times of the Gentiles. This is a, a phrase we find in the book of Luke. Because what Nebuchadnezzar begins, and it will continue until the Antichrist, is the dominion of the planet Earth under Gentile leadership. The Antichrist, uh, the, this coming world leader, I'll tend to call him, ends this peculiar period of time that are known in the Scripture as the times of the Gentiles. Now it's interesting that from Daniel chapter 2, through Daniel chapter 7, the focus of the book is on the Gentile world. And the language of the text changes. The book of Daniel is in Hebrew up to chapter 2, and after chapter 7 it's in Hebrew, like most of the Bible. But from 2 to 7 it's in Aramaic, which was the Gentile language of the period, because that's the focus of it. And Daniel's prophecies are a very rare glimpse of the Gentile world. In general, the Bible always talks about both past history and future history, a prophecy, through the lens of Israel. 
But we have a gift here, a very unusual gift, because Daniel's prophecies are going to focus on the Gentile world. It's an exception in the Bible. As I say, most of it's different. But in, in, from Daniel 2 through Daniel 7, the focus, the center of interest, is the Gentile dominion. And he writes all this down in advance. And uh, now the times of the Gentiles, don't be confused by that phrase, because there's a, some other similar phrases that are not quite the same thing. The times of the Gentiles began with Nebuchadnezzar. They'll end with the coming world leader, uh, who will be displaced, of course, by the Lord Jesus Christ setting up His kingdom. In the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. Now, it's, it's frustrating to have to go through Daniel so quickly, because Daniel 2 itself is so dramatic, but we'll keep moving here. As you can imagine, these guys that got upstaged by Daniel and his three friends are looking for an opportunity for revenge. And uh, we get to Daniel chapter 3, and these guys apparently have fanned Nebuchadnezzar's ego, so he issues a very unusual order. He's on an ego trip. So first of all, as part of this ego trip, he builds an image, I assume, the image is probably very similar to the one he saw in his dream, except in this case, it's all gold. There's no silver, bronze, it's all gold. In other words, this is sort of his bid for immortality, I suspect. And he, he orders, when certain music is played, that everyone is to bow down and worship his image. And anyone that doesn't is going to get killed. Now, I suspect he was prompted to do this by Daniel's rivals, because these rivals knew that these faithful Hebrew young men would refuse to do that. And that was their way of getting them executed. And so that's exactly what happens. Nebuchadnezzar puts out the word, and uh, they, these three friends of Daniel's fail to bow down. So he orders them into the fiery furnace. In fact, he's so infuriated, when he, he gives him a second chance. If you lie down, everything will be fine. And the three young men tell him, our God is able to save us. And if he isn't, up yours, O king. This is really their attitude. You've been listening to Dr. Chuck Missler, teaching through his series entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours, here on 6640. If you would like further information about materials available from Dr. Missler, please contact us through this station or visit our website at khouse.org. Until next time, when Dr. Missler continues this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.